It's like David is saying, when God saved me from Saul, it was like what he did when he brought Israel through the Red Sea. And then the next words, look at verse 16. David says, he sent from on high, he took me, he drew me out of many waters. Does this remind you of anyone? Is there anyone in the Bible? Because she said, I drew him out of the waters. Moses. That's exactly, Pharaoh's daughter, she named him Moses for she said, I drew him out of the waters. David says, he sent from on high, he took me, he drew me out of the waters. It's like, it's almost like David is saying this. The way that God saved me from Saul is the way that God saved Israel at the Exodus. And the role that Moses played at the Exodus is the role that I'm playing in my day. And I I think David is understanding uh, the way that God is making this promise to continue the work of salvation through his line. So, but this, this psalm in particular illustrates what I was saying earlier about how the story provides imagery that we use to interpret our lives and to summarize and, and retell and reaffirm the story because the kind of thing that God did at the Exodus is the kind of thing that he did at Abraham's life. It's the kind of thing that he did in David's life and it's fulfilled ultimately in Christ on the cross and it's the kind of thing that he does in our lives too. Uh, the, Lord, the Lord saves his people consistently across the pages of Scripture. I want to go back now and I want to I want to take you to Genesis 49. And I, and I want we've looked at the blessing of Abraham. I want to see I want to look at the um, the blessing of Judah in Genesis 49. And we looked at Genesis 26. We we started with the blessing of Abraham, land seed and blessing. We saw that pass to Isaac in Genesis 26, land, seed, and blessing. If we went to Genesis 28, we would see it pass to Jacob, land, seed, and blessing. And then um, I also want to note this. Um, as, as you work your way across the book of Genesis, there's all this conflict between brothers. There's all this fraternal friction. So um, Cain kills Abel, and then um, Ishmael He's mocking Isaac, and Sarah's really unhappy about that. And then Esau wants to kill Jacob. And then um, Joseph's brothers, they want to kill him. And then, and then eventually, the resolution to the fraternal conflict is when Joseph, at the end of the book in Genesis 50, forgives his brothers. And he assures them that, that they have nothing to fear. Even though Jacob has died, they should not fear him because he's forgiven them. And, and what you see is a, a seed of the woman in whom the fraternal conflict is being resolved through forgiveness. And, and so we might, think, we might think that the line of promise is going to come through Joseph. But along the way, as we, as we get down through these events, um, Judah becomes prominent. And look at, the, look at what's said to Judah in Genesis 49 verse 8. We read here, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. 
your father's sons shall bow down before you. Is there anyone in Genesis before whom the father's sons bowed down? That's a real question. Bingo, exactly. And, and what's interesting about this is the very language used when Joseph narrates those dreams that he had about his brothers and his father and mother bowing down, it's the very same language used to describe in Hebrew uh, to, to, to describe this blessing. And, and so in God's providence, the, the, the things that happened in Joseph's life, it's like they're picked up and now applied to Judah. So it's, it's like Judah is being identified as the one through whom the seed of the woman is going to come. And, and the imagery that took place in, in Joseph's life is being overlaid onto this blessing of Judah. And then verse 9, Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? I think lion imagery is used because, because all over the world, when people look at lions, they think, man, that looks like a royal, noble, majestic animal. And so lions are often associated with, with regal, royal, you know, kingship imagery. And then verse 10, the scepter, this is what a king holds, shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Verse 11, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. Now what's going to happen if you bind a donkey or a colt to a choice vine. Let's say it's like a grape vine. What's going to happen? He's going to eat it, right? Why would you bind the animal there? Well, I think you'd bind the animal there only if your land is so fruitful and so fertile that it doesn't matter if, if you tie him up right there. You've got plenty of grapes. So I think the, the, the blessing is, is pointing to a time when the land is going to be renewed, when the land will have become like the Garden of Eden. And then it says in verse 11, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. So they're using wine to do their laundry. This, I always, every time I, I read this, I think of Amare Stoudemire, uh, the NBA basketball player, and this story that I read about him. I read this story about Amare Stoudemire uh, because apparently he's in the practice, or, or you know, he just does this from time to time. He'll fill up a hot tub with red wine and then he'll get into the hot tub and just marinate in the wine because it apparently it's, it has you know healing and, and soothing and medicinal benefits for him. But can you imagine what this would cost <laughs> to fill up a hot tub with wine? We're talk the, the, the reporter that, that, I, I re that was writing the story uh, recounted how he asked uh, Stoudemire, where in the world did you even get this idea? And he said, well, I was talking to some other rich people. I mean, this is a guy that makes hundreds of thousands of dollars per game. You know, he's got so much money, it doesn't matter what he does with it. And that's the kind of scene that's described here. He, wa he has washed his garments in wine. There is a plenty that is abundant when the Messiah is going to reign. And as a result, he's healthy, verse 12. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Now, 
We've looked tonight at Genesis 3.15, Genesis 12.1-3, and we kind of dipped into Genesis 26, and I alluded to Genesis 28, and now we're looking at Genesis 49.8-12. I want to propose to you that Moses means for us to read these promises in conjunction with one another, and he, he expects us to see that, that the seed of the woman is going to bring about the blessing of Abraham, and he's going to be the future king from Judah's line. And one of the ways that Moses ensures that his readers will see this is by means of what he does in the Balaam oracles, which is just amazing that he would choose to do it this way, but this is, this is what we have. So if you look with me over at Genesis chapter 22, um, in the Balaam oracles, uh, what, what, what's happening here is Israel has come out of Egypt and they're on the w- their way to the land of promise. And um, remember what the blessing of Abraham says in Genesis 12:3. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. Well, as they get to the land of Moab, the king of Moab summons this pagan prophet named Balaam. And he says to Balaam in, Gen- in Numbers 22, verse 6, he says, come now, curse this people for me. And then he says at the end of that verse, Gen- Numbers 22, 6, I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. Now, Moses means for us to think, Oh, no, 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 Mr. Moab. That's not the way it works. He whom God blesses is blessed. And God has blessed Abraham. And there's not going to be anything that Balaam can do to overturn God's blessing of, of the people of Israel. And that's exactly what, what happens. Bola, look, at, look at what uh, Balaam starts saying. Look at Numbers 23, verse 8. How can I curse whom God has not cursed? How can I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? And then he, he goes on. I want to draw your attention to Numbers 24. And um, in the midst of these oracles, I mean, this, these oracles are amazing. Um, for one thing, because Balaam, I don't think, is a true believer. And yet the Bible says things like, look at, look at Numbers 24, verse 2. Balaam lifted up his eyes and saw Israel camping tribe by tribe, and the Spirit of God came upon him. Now, why do I think Balaam is not a true believer? Well, if you look over at Numbers 31, um, it says in verse 8, they killed the kings of Midian. And then at the end of verse 8, they also killed Balaam, the son of Baor, with the sword. And, And one of the reasons that they killed Balaam is because of verse 16 of Numbers 31. These on Balaam's advice caused the people of, the, of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor, and so the plague came upon the congregation of the Lord. Balaam, he, he tries to curse Israel, and all he can do is bless them. And so he goes back to the king of Moab, and he says to him, the only, essentially, the only way you're going to get these people uh, not blessed is by getting them to sin. So what you're going to have to do is send these lascivious women in to entice the men into sexual immorality, and then they'll commit idolatry. And so that's what the king of Moab does. And as a result, Balaam dies in battle fighting against Israel. And yet the Spirit of God is inspiring him. 
And look at what he says in Numbers chapter 24. This is amazing. This is, this is one of those things that it's just astonishing. Numbers 24 verse um, 9. As Balaam is, is talking about Israel, he says, He crouched, he lay down like a lion, and like a lioness, who will rouse him up? Does that sound familiar? That is almost a direct quotation of Genesis 49 verse 9. It is almost, there, there's just slight changes between Genesis 49.9 and Numbers 24.9, the first part of the verse. Look at the second part of the verse, Numbers 24.9. Blessed are those who bless you, and cursed are those who curse you. That is a reformulation of Genesis 12.3. Do you see what Moses presents Balaam doing? Balaam is putting together the blessing of Judah with the blessing of Abraham. And it's like Moses is saying, hey, if you've read to this point and you don't have it figured out that the blessing of Abraham is going to come through the king from Judah's line, let me just put these two promises together so that you see it. But the only way we'll see it is if we know the texts, right? The only way we'll see it is if we know Genesis 12.3 and we know Genesis 49.9 so that when we reread it, we're like, oh, here it is again. Here it is again. And then... Okay, so, so at this point, Genesis 49, Genesis 12 are to be read together. You keep reading and look down at verse 17. I see him, Balaam says, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter. The same word used in Genesis 49.10, the scepter will not depart from Judah until he comes uh, to whom it belongs and a scepter shall rise out of Israel, it shall crush the forehead of Moab. Now, to get our arms around what's going on here, let's remember that God cursed the serpent, right? And then God cursed Cain, and then God cursed Ham, or Noah cursed Ham, and then God said that whoever uh, dishonored Abraham would be cursed. And I suggested to you earlier tonight that if you're cursed, you're seed of the serpent. Moab is in the process of trying to curse Israel. Moab is going to, they're dishonoring Abraham. They're going to be cursed, right? I think this means we should interpret Moab as seed of the serpent. And look what's happening to Moab. The scepter, the star, scepter, Genesis 49, 10, the, star, the, the ruler from Israel is going to crush the forehead of Moab. You could say he's going to bruise the head of the seed of the serpent. That's Genesis 3.15. So it's like, it's like Moses is tying together for us Genesis 49 and Genesis 12 and now Genesis 3.15. And then it keeps going. Look at, look at verse 19. He says, One from Jacob shall exercise dominion. Where do we get that word that we looked at tonight? Genesis 1.28, right? Uh, fill the earth and sub, uh, subdue it and have dominion over all these animals. So uh, the, the, what God intended to do with Adam in Genesis 1.28, what God promised to do in Genesis 3.15, Genesis 12.1-3, Genesis 49.8-12, this Balaam oracle of all things brings it all together and essentially says, I mean, we can say, this, say it this way today, Jesus is going to bring all this to pass. 
Jesus, the future king from Judah's line, is going to be the one to bring about the blessing of Abraham, and he's going to be the seed of the woman who will crush the head of the seed of the serpent. How are we doing? Okay. Okay, great. Let, let's, uh, let me just take you to a couple of places in the New Testament um, that bring this out. So um, look with me at Luke chapter 1. And I just want to draw your attention to the way that um, when Zechariah, well, even, even when Mary, look at the end of what Mary says in Luke chapter 1, verse uh, 54 and 55. She says, He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever. So Mary is saying that this child that's going to be born to me is going to bring about the fulfillment of what God promised to Abraham. And then Zechariah reinforces that. Look at verse 73. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham. So the New Testament, Jason and I were talking about this earlier, um, trying to read the New Testament without the Old Testament is kind of like trying to read Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows without the first six books. But if if you've read those six books, and even better if you've reread those six books, and then you come to the Deathly Hallows, there's this richness and this fullness and this texture and this depth, and and it's just magnificent. That's what reading the, the New Testament is like if you've really gotten your arms around what's going on in the Old Testament. One more, one more text I'll take you to, uh, Galatians chapter 3, where Paul says this. Um, I, I just want to draw your attention to verse 14. He says, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. I'm curious, is there anybody in the room tonight of Jewish descent? Raise your hand if you're of Jewish descent. One person, half, an eighth. And that's it? No other, no other people of Jewish descent? It's a room full of Gentiles. I mean, we got two people with some Jewish ancestry. The blessing of Abraham has come to the Gentiles in Christ Jesus so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. We, 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 are, we are experiencing, if you, if you believe in Jesus, you are experiencing the realization of the promises that God made to Abraham. And, and it's, it's, it's the sheer mercy of God. And, and what we want to do is we want to understand who we are, and we want to we make the Bible story our story, and, and, and uh, we want to, to live out uh, what God calls us to. And um, let, me, let me take you one more place. I want to take you to 1 Peter. And... Um, and I just want to draw your attention to some things that Peter says and the way that it's almost like Peter um, is assuming the Old Testament narrative here in the way that he's describing Christians and what has happened to us. So um, in, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. Now, why would Peter talk about um, Christians as, as chosen exiles? Well, part of it, part of the reason, I think, is in the Old Testament, the elect people were the Jewish people, 
And they were exiled, not just from the Holy Land, but from the Garden of Eden. And, and the hope was that they would return to the land and that when they returned to the land, it would be like a return to Eden. And it's, it's, so it's kind of like Christians are now the chosen people who are, who are looking for the return, not just to the Holy Land, but to the, to the Edenic land. And then he says in verse 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance. And, and all over the Old Testament, inheritance language is used about the land of Israel. And so it, and, and, um, to be in the land where God dwells is to be in the land of life. It's to be alive. To be outside the presence of God is to be in the unclean realm of the dead. And so it's like Peter is saying, you've been born again, you've been given life, and what God is going to do is he's going to give you this, this inheritance, and I think he's, he's pointing in the direction of the new heaven and new earth, because he goes on to say that it's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. And in the book of Revelation, um, the new Jerusalem comes down from God out of heaven. And then he goes on, look down at verse 13. He says, therefore, the ESV renders this, preparing your minds for action. But they've got a footnote at the end of the word action. And down in the lower margin, it says, girding up the loins of your mind. And it says that because when Israel fled Egypt, they girded up their loins and they fled the land in haste. And Peter, Peter is using that imagery and he's saying, you know, tighten, your, tighten up your thinking, gird up the loins of your mind. And then he says, it, it's, almost, it's almost leaving Egypt imagery. Then he says in verse 15, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Um, Israel, they came out of Egypt, they got to Mount Sinai, and God called them to be holy because he is holy. And then he goes on. Look at verse, uh, look at verse 19. Uh, I'm sorry, I want to start in verse 18. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. Ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. Not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. It's like he's saying, you know, it's, it's like you were enslaved in Egypt to the, the feudal ways of your forefathers. And God redeemed you from that, not with uh, money, silver or gold, but with the blood of Christ. And then he says, um, Look down at verse uh, 23. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Now, we could say a lot about this, but I think, I think this is what, what Peter is getting at, is that when the word of God comes to people, it gives life. Um, Jesus says, John 6, 63, uh, the flesh profits nothing. My words are spirit and life. Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 
He says it pleased God not to save through the wisdom of man, but through the folly of what we preach. So the preached message of the gospel, Paul says in Romans 1.16, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. The word of God gives people life. The word of God awakens people's hearts. You've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. And then um, uh, Peter quotes Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8. And in that context, if we were to go back and read Isaiah 40, we would find that um, Isaiah is prophesying of the fulfillment of the exodus from Egypt and the return to the land that is going to be like the, new the return to the, to the land of Eden and the entrance into the new heavens and new earth. And, and, and this statement in that context is given to say, God is certainly going to do this. All flesh is like grass. It's glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. So what I'm saying is that Peter is taking the Old Testament story of the Exodus and what happened to Israel, and he's laying it over on the lives of Christians. And it's like he's saying, gird up the loins of your mind. Be holy, for he is holy. All flesh is like grass. The word of the Lord stands forever. And then look what he does in 2.4. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, like a temple, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Israel got the priesthood and the sacrificial system and the tabernacle all out of Mount Sinai after, after the exodus from Egypt. And then in Exodus chapter 19, the Lord had told Israel that they were a chosen race, a holy people, a royal priesthood. Look at 1 Peter 2, 9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is who we are. This is our story. It's like that old hymn, this is my story, this is my song. Uh, praising my Savior all the day long. This is, this, this is our worldview story. These are our doctrines. This is how we're to live. This is how we're to worship. And this is the culture that we're to help create as we all agree that this is what is normal for us.